Some would say that today's parasha is the one most alienating to a religious seeker. And certainly in past times, to Christian Europeans dabbling in the Old Testament. For they said it's an angry God, a God who likes to threaten, a punishing God. And thus, one of the most influential philosophers in history, Hegel, wrote that although Judaism is a religion of sublimity, the sublimity of God within it is inaccessible to normal people. And thus, they needed God made flesh in a human to understand that God channels love and not merely the anger and punishment of the Old Testament. I asked Malcolm what he thought about this, and I wrote down his answer. I said, Malcolm, do you see this as an angry God, as a God who likes to threaten, one who is hard to relate to, too distant, too sublime? Malcolm responded, quote, it tells you all of the things, this parasha, that God is going to do to you if you don't follow these rules. But a lot of those things could happen to you naturally if you don't. So in a way, it's not God doing it to you, you're doing it to yourself. I wish we could all get to Malcolm's level of relating to it, but not everyone has an easy time getting there. After all, people think if God is omniscient, God knows what will happen, then these awful verses, it sounds a bit cold, a bit calculating, maybe even a little bit angry. Where is God's benevolence? If God is omniscient, then why the tone? In thinking about Jeremiah's comments and why it's connected to this Torah portion and how much Jeremiah talks about the issue being one of idolatry, people tend to make idols. They make what he calls no gods. When we build our own gods, then the gods are no gods, and we should not be surprised by how we relate to them. I want to share a comment that's been much on my mind from an extraordinary writer. Her name is Lacey Crawford. She's really only published one book. It took her decades and decades and decades to finally write it. She said when she finally wrote it, it took her fewer than three months. Time Magazine, NPR, Marie Claire, Lit Hub, Library Journal, all named it one of the best books of 2020. It was a New York Times Book Review's Editor's Choice and one of People Magazine's 10 best books of the year. It's a book about her finally writing about a sexual assault when she was 15 in a very exclusive boarding school and how she came to find out later that as she had worked through it in her life, a lot of facts around it had been kept from her by the authorities. When the boxes of evidence were open, she realized how she had been gaslit, but she also, it's an extraordinary book. It, it, it goes much beyond simply the basis of the narrative. And I want to focus on something that, in a way, she said very casually and left a big mark on me about idolatry. She talks about the fact that when she went to Princeton, she had intended to be a creative writer. She knew she would use her experience when she was 15 and other experiences to do great things. And by amazing coincidence, Toni Morrison was going to be teaching at Princeton when she was there. She writes, one autumn day, I had happened to be looking out the window of a friend's dorm room. Toni Morrison was at that moment crossing the center of the quad alone. Across the way, I saw faces pressed against the glass, also watching as though there had been some sound or summons. 
I still don't understand her gravity. <clears throat> Remember, gravity in Hebrew is kavod. I still don't understand her gravity, but I want you to know that when Toni Morrison walked across campus, kids came to their windows to watch her go by. She writes that she got, she managed miraculously to get to, into Toni Morrison's special seminar, and it was only 10 people or 15 people, and she wrote for Toni Morrison. And she relates the following story, that on the door that was always closed to Toni Morrison's office, where she would go and look at the door, but it was always closed, was the following quotation from Mizuta Masahida, 1657 to 1723. Barnes burnt down. Now I can see the moon. Barnes burnt down. Now I can see the moon. She writes, I memorized the card, felt all that it was all I could do. How do you study with a master? It's far from clear. I once saw Olympic marathoners in person. The only thing I understood from my own running was that there should be a different word for the thing that they were doing. The relation to someone like the person you want to be your mentor, your teacher, was one really of a form of idolatry. And I'm sensitive to it because I experienced myself. I could almost never bring myself to go see my, the person I admired most in the world at, at college and my advisor, I never made appointments. I never went to see him. I was embarrassed in his presence. So she wrote down that what, so she relates, Lacey, that one day Toni Morrison told the seminar that her house had burned down a few weeks earlier. This had happened in late December, just weeks before we met with her for the first time. She'd lost her home and all of her books. She told us her friends were sending her signed copies of all of their own works from all over the world. And wasn't that something? I sat up, prepared. Her house had burned down. I looked at her and I said out loud, but the poem, now you can see the moon. I still feel her silence, it scalds. A fool, I tried to explain. On your door, the poem on your door, you can see the moon. Toni Morrison looked at me and said, you. I waited. She should have had my head and I would have surrendered it without protest. You, you are the only one who said it. But I couldn't have been the only other one who thought it. She was the oracle. Her words described the world more accurately than any language I'd ever heard. Of course she'd known her own house would burn down. She was recovered before it even ever happened. Wasn't she? I think of this issue of omniscience, how it plays in. It turns out there's more than one way to refuse a person's humanity. Idolatry too is a failure of care. And if there was one thing Toni Morris insisted on, it was the humanity in all people. I just wanna repeat the last line. It turns out there is more than one way to refuse a person's humanity. Idolatry too is a failure of care. Idolatry as denying humanity. We deny God's humanity when we see the angry God. When we see the God who likes to punish, or the God that seems to want to curse us, 
or the God so wise and omniscient who knew what will happen. Such a God becomes a statue. It's the no God of Jeremiah. It's the God of our own making. I'm still terribly embarrassed that one of the few times I had the courage to make an appointment with this unbelievable soul, former minister who became a theologian and a professor, published one book, never published anything else. And there were only strange people like me who took his seminars on Wittgenstein and Buddhism. And when I went to his home for an appointment, I asked him why he often missed class. I frankly didn't mind, I love snow days, but I'd never had a professor who missed class so much. He simply looked at me and said, well, I suffer from migraines. When I'm missing class, it means I'm at home throwing up uncontrollably. I had no idea what to say, and I didn't say anything. I felt like Lacey in front of Toni Morrison, but you're, you're like so enlightened, like you have this all, you have pain figured out, right? You have it all figured out ahead of time. You're not experiencing the emotions like I would. I sometimes think that, um, what if we didn't do that? What if the universe actually cares whether we succeed in slowing climate change. After all, the universe birthed us. I know Malcolm and I have a running argument. He told me that it is a mathematical certainty that there is sentient life elsewhere in the universe. And I admit that it's a possibility. I just don't admit that it's a certainty. And so I raised the question, what if there's nothing like us in the universe? Just what if? What if the universe actually cared that it birthed us, as the mystical rabbis known as the Kabbalists said, that the very existence of the bubble that produced space-time is, as the Kabbalists imagined it, a womb, that we are all connected to God through umbilical cords, and not just us, but every, every molecule, every, everything that exists in the universe. Maybe we, it's hard to relate to the universe actually caring whether we solve these crises, like, the, like it's our, a mother, because we're actually denying its humanity. It's actually denying that it has feelings. Sometimes think that this is a projection of ourselves. As my eight-year-old daughter, Ziva, told me the other day when I was watching yet another video about how not, except for number ones and number twos, nothing is getting recycled, how fish are coming out of the ocean with not only plastic in their gullets, but even within the cells of their skin, she asked me to turn it off. And she said, Dad, you're always watching these. And I said, well, it's important to know these things, the consequences of our actions. And she said, I know you've already shown them to me, but it's very, very upsetting. And it makes me feel like there's no hope for my future. I sometimes wonder if it's that frustration that's in me, that's in all of us, about racial inequality, about the divisions and socioeconomic classes, about where our country is. It's our anger at the consequences of our actions that we project on our idol rather than seeing God in motherly terms. After all, God appeared to Moshe in the thorn bush. And as the rabbinic tradition says, it's because God was trying to say that God suffers when we do. Maybe this is the most motherly part of the Torah in so many ways. It's like the universe that I understand as having birthed us saying, I'm teaching you what the consequences of your actions will be. I foresee you will likely make your own mistakes and we will be so separated. But there's always a way back if you use the wisdom, the common sense, the conscience, 
the awareness of what you are capable of. I close for this Mother's Day weekend with a poem by Wendell Berry that mixes the themes of omniscience, prediction, the suffering and the love of what it means to be a parent who teaches then has to wait to see what will happen and sometimes knows all too well. By Wendell Berry, to my mother. I was your rebellious son. Do you remember? Sometimes I wonder if you do remember, so complete has your forgiveness been. So complete has your forgiveness been. I wonder sometimes if it did not precede my wrong. And I erred, safe found within your love. Prepared ahead of me, the way home, or my bed at night, so that almost I should forgive you, who perhaps foresaw the worst that I might do, and forgave me before I could act, causing me to smile now, looking back, to see how paltry was my worst, compared to your forgiveness of it, already given. And this then is the vision of that heaven of which we have heard, where those who love each other have forgiven each other, where for that the leaves are green, the light a music in the air, and all is unentangled, and all is undismayed. Shabbat Shalom.